0: Welcome leaders. I'm your host, Cree at home. Are you a small or medium sized business that is in growth mode? Are you looking to grow your business, but are either too busy or not sure how to take things to the next level? Leadership Excursion Company, who is the sponsor of this podcast, provides business coaching services to help you do just that. Leadership Excursion Company works with its clients to help organize business operations, create obtainable goals, and support the transition to a place where you, as a business owner, can place more focus on the future of your business. Leadership Excursion Company also provides leadership training services to managers and team members that support effective communication, accountability, and continued growth. When you invest in your team, you are investing in your business. For more information about business coaching services, visit leadershipexcursion.co. Today's guest is so intriguing. Dr. Jacqueline Rinaldi's areas of expertise are archetypal psychology, compassion, and self-awareness. She shares invaluable insight in this episode, including how a crippling life challenge has manifested into the incredible work she does today. And with that, we welcome you to the Leadership Looks Like podcast. Join us as we explore personal stories of leaders who are making an incredible impact in their businesses, lives, and communities. Get ready to be inspired, see things from a new perspective, and learn new tools to help overcome challenges. This is what leadership looks like. Jacqueline, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It is so great. So we're meeting for the first time just now through a mutual friend. Um, Stephanie Rosal has been on the podcast a couple of times. Very cool. So um, I am so curious. I can't wait to talk to you about your work that you do. And um, tell us about you. Tell us about your background and um, why you pursued your PhD. And I I don't want to talk for you. I can't wait for you to tell us your story.
1: (laughs) Well, probably like most of us, my story is it always has a dark side, right? But um so I started my PhD because I was well, prior to starting my PhD, I was in a relationship with a guy who was totally abusive and I had never been in a situation like that and I got I I was really taken out of my element and I was just stuck in this yucky, yucky place. And um, so I started therapy. And I I went into therapy and I'm like, hey, what is wrong with me that I would allow this into my life? I grew up with a mom and a dad who are still married. And, you know, there's lots of love in my family. Please help me understand. So anyway, through my therapy process, it didn't take long. And then I I was able to leave the relationship. And after about, I dove into my therapy. And after about two years, I would say, I knew that I needed to bring some light to the world. I needed to help people see in whatever way that I could that it doesn't have to be like this. This this was a choice. I, I was choosing to be stuck, and I was choosing that victim role. And while it wasn't like a huge period of time, it, it was still hugely devastating. Like when I look back and I look at pictures of myself, then it, it's really... Like it's really yucky. Like I'm so thin and skinny. I look almost like, yeah, kind of like a homeless person. Like I just look unwell. I look unwell. And, um, it's so, so anyway, through, through that process becoming, becoming whole or becoming more whole, I guess you would say, um, my therapy process kind of became a spiritual journey, kind of like how Carl Jung describes it, the individuation process, that's, that was my path completely. And um, so I just kept walking down that road and probably about, ah, you know, it, it was like a 12-year process. And then I, I decided to go to grad school and then I got my master's in archetypal psychology, which is Carl Jung based. And, um, and we just look at the collective wellness of like a group of people or a culture, like a therapist would put a person on the couch somebody with this degree would put society on the couch mm-hmm. or a collective whole. And so I did, I did my master's and then I continued to my PhD. And then um, once I finished my PhD, I realized writing is definitely my thing. I love it. Um, so I'm working on my book now. Hopefully, you know, I'll get that published in the next year or so. That's oh, that's my, amazing. Yeah. So that's my goal.
0: So when you were in your abusive relationship, what was the turning point for you? The, well, cause you know, you, you, you go through that experience and uh, we've had a couple of guests on the podcast who've talked about this and that, that moment in time I think is so interesting when you finally go, you know what, I've had enough. And I think it's different for everyone and everybody has a different journey on how to get there. And everybody's rock bottom is different. And I'm curious to know what, what that switch was for you. Right. Um, the switch was,
1: I I had a huge support system with, you know, with my therapy group. I had a whole group of women that were around me, and it was huge, and my therapist, and then my parents. But But I think the thing that really made me change my phone number and never answer, I never talked to him again, I never answered one phone call or one email, and there was Hundreds of thousands, you know, it was like twenty times a day, but I, it was um, I. He was he cheated on me, and how and 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 it makes me sad because I realize like how crazy that sounds that I would let somebody hurt me physically, and then yet it was the thing of cheating on me that made me go, bye, I'm done.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I don't think that's crazy at all. It's something. It's, yeah. it's 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 got to trigger you in that way that um, it is going to make you want to do something different. Yeah,
1: and I knew like I was yeah. already on the path. You know, I knew I was living in in filth and yucky. And I, I described it. I remember th- descri- like doing some writing and describing it. Like I lived, you know, my house was beautiful and it, we lived on a golf course and it was lovely. But I felt like I lived in this dark, dingy cobwebs everywhere grit on the window so you had to like wipe it clean to see outside mm-hmm. like that's what i felt like i lived in mm-hmm. and so just saying yeah this is not for me like like none of us deserve this this is like not okay that was that was the huge turning point when when writing has always been healing for me and I Mm -hmm. and I would journal always about Mm -hmm. my experience in this and so that it did help me gain insight to how yucky this little world I was saying yes I'm gonna
0: live here you know it was really yucky so anyway yeah but it's all it also didn't not only did it change in that moment but it has this is the outcome. What the work you're doing now and what you're doing now and the new path that you're on now. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. I mean, do you think that that without that experience you would be doing what you're doing now? No. You and, know? Yeah, totally. And yeah. and that's another crazy thing to say. Yeah. But um, you know, there's hope out there, there's light out there and and when you're ready, you'll you'll make a change no matter what that is in your situation. It's an abusive relationship, but yeah, you know, you will, if you want to make a change, if you want to do something different, there's going to be something that triggers that. And it's going to lead you down an adventure. That's where you, where you want to be Yeah, to design it on your own and use that as, a, as, um, like inspiration. Yeah. Almost, yeah, you know?
1: absolutely. You're right. I mean, I wouldn't change it for the world, even though I also wouldn't wish it upon anybody on the planet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But it
1: but I you're right, I wouldn't change it. It's it's made me coming through that, coming to out the other side feeling all that pain and looking back. I mean, that's wow. Good for me. Like that's courage. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, making those changes and and doing changing my thinking so that I could like see this perspective this way because my thinking was so tunnel vision. So I do, I value it hugely, even
0: though it's craziness. Well, and it'll always be a part of your story and who you are. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. And and yeah. you're right. I think everybody has a story, and a lot of us have some deep-seated darkness stuff, and, and you're right, that's the stuff that we have to walk through in order to really know what it is to shine light, you know, to shine our light.
0: hmm yeah. So you mentioned a gentleman's name, Carl... Oh, Carl Jung. Yes, Carl Jung. So I don't know anything about Carl Jung. Who is this person?
1: Oh, he's rad. He's awesome. Um, <laughs> he's uh, so he he was a he died. I don't know. I can't remember when he died, but it wasn't that long ago. It was like uh, I think he died in the sixties. But anyway, doesn't matter. He him and Freud. He was a the student of Freud, and then he and Freud had a disagreement, and Freud was like, hey that's not cool. I don't like you anymore. Go away. So Jung kind of went this way and Freud went this way. So Freud has his um, thinking, I guess, if you will, and, and Jung developed his. So Jung's, Jung kind of became the father of what we know as modern psychology. Mm-hmm. So anytime you look at your shadow or your darkness or you kind of are embracing both light and dark, that's Jungian
0: thinking. Okay. Okay. So we
1: we all probably know way more young than we think we do because every uh, so many authors are kind of regurgitating his his thoughts he's Mm -hmm. he's a huge thought leader i guess you would say Mm -hmm.
0: so did you study psychology is that what you went to school to to study yeah
1: Uh, well it was it's archetypal psychology so we looked at um we looked at religious studies Philosophy and psychology, so it's kind of a woven together of all three. So, so we we would lay, look at a tradition, like a religious tradition, and look at the psychology, the undertones of of why people would sign up for this, or what's going on with the collective whole. And we would look at the darkness of it and the light, and and why. Um, why a group can sign up for like a collective darkness? How can all these people choose? this great harm, you know, why isn't somebody saying, Hey, Hey, you know, that, that understanding the, the group, how easy it is for a group to just say yes, for Mm -hmm. whatever reason, the power, the fear, whatever it is trying to fit in. There's lots of, you know, I mean, we're just kind of talking general, but, um, so my degree is really philosophy and psychology woven together with, um, the religious studies intertwined. How did you kind of end intense. up
0: wanting to study that?
1: Well, I wanted that for me, when I, when I was on my therapy journey, you know, it really became a spiritual journey for me. Mm-hmm. And that's what Carl Jung describes as the individuation process. Like we all kind of go through this and when we individuate, when we really become, when we find the depth of being between human to human, when we really can be there for another human being because we have, we've we've developed enough compassion to see the human being next to us rather than filtering things through, oh, my hair's messed up, or, you know, like stupid stuff, like ego stuff. When we're able to get past those, so Jung would call that um, complexes. So when mm-hmm. we can get through the complexes and get to, this place of inner peace, then we're, then we're going to be able to relate more on this oneness thing or this unity-based. And um, yeah, so wait, what was the
0: question? I don't know, but I'm totally intrigued by this. <laughs> I mean, I've been asking general questions <laughs> until now. So I asked about Carl. Oh, yeah, okay. And then why you chose to study.
1: Ah, uh, so I chose... T- right, right, that's it. So I chose to study because I wanted... The psychology was really important to me. Mm -hmm. But then I also wanted some of the spiritual aspects. And I liked my degree program because we looked um, really at the philosophy of Buddhism, which can be really helpful when looking at psychology. We look at the philosophy. We looked at Sufism. We looked at, like, every tradition we would look at. So I really wanted that integration of some spirituality without making— like, in an academic sense. So we can take these spiritual ideas and— Somebody doesn't have to go to church to mm-hmm. sign up for it or mm-hmm. to resonate with it. That
0: that's what I wanted. So it was kind of like everybody could fit in with it. So you're try so you were studying kind of the gap between religion and maybe in scientific study. Is that a better or not a better, but is that an accurate? Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's that's pretty that's accurate. I think it's it's like um it's definitely in the world of philosophy. Okay. So it's it's a lot it's not so much scientific as in data, but, um, but it's very like the philosophy of, it's a wisdom tradition. So my degree is in how can we look at these wisdom traditions and, and use our philosophy and psychology mind to bring it to the world? Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Could you run through an example of something? Like I think of marketing. Yeah. And the reason why I say that I took and this has been a long time ago now, but I took a class, it was like a humanities class, and it was the only one available at the time slot that I needed you know, to take this class. Uh-huh. And I ended up in, and it was something witchcraft and religion. Okay, that sounds interesting. But it, it, I don't know, it reminds me of what you're talking about right now. And basically, we studied things like death, Mm. like death rituals around the world. Yeah. And then we talked about um, messaging and marketing. And then we dove into things like witchcraft Mm -hmm. and different aspects of religion Mm -hmm. and how it really shows up in our everyday lives and we don't realize it.
1: Yes, yes, yes. That's totally exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then we look at why, so why it shows up and what is the thinking going on that we would want this to persist or, you know, maybe it's healthy. Maybe we do want it to persist. How cool. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what the thinking is behind the decision to keep that alive.
0: Yeah. Like in marketing, there is so much masculinity in marketing Mm -hmm. and you would never see it unless you really looked at it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So, um, you know, it's just these types of themes are perpetuated in everything we see every day. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, could you tell us, or give us some sort of an example of of something that you studied that really intrigued you. Sure, let's think. Let's think.
1: Um, I think for me, I've I've always I really like looking at ways I've studied compassion, so that's my area of research. Mm-hmm. And um, what I looked at is I t- looked at every single religious tradition, like um, like I said, Buddhism, Christianity. Um, Islamic tradition, uh, Judaism, and I looked at all of their mystic people, all the, the mystic leaders of that tradition are teaching something very similar, and it all comes down to love and compassion and kindness and all of this. But then when we get into um, the normal lay people, we get into teachings that are kind of steeped in rules, this is my rule, this is the rule book of this tradition, and we follow these rules, and if you don't, you're either a sinner or you're in trouble or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And um, so for me, I looked at, it was really moving to see how every tradition kind of has, every everything, even, um, you know, we all have a continuum. We, We can be either a fundamentalist or we can be a mystic, even if it's in... You know, I mean, you can be an Amway salesperson and be super fundamental and be like, everything has to be Amway, 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 Amway. Or you can be kind of like a mystic and say, oh, but I like that that other brand, New Skin or whatever it is. And, and, and they're the same kind of program. Well, same in religion. There's always going to be the fundamentalists and there's always going to be the mystics. And I found that when I studied the mystics, there was this total unity between all of it. And so I dove into that and I used all of the traditions to teach compassion because mm-hmm. they all teach it very similar. They all teach it in a similar way. Mm-hmm. So um, that's what I wrote my dissertation on is if we taught compassion to little tiny kids all the way through higher education, how would that change our addiction to war or violence
0: or... The dark side, like you yeah. mentioned before. Yep, like Whatever yep. that dark side is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is compassion inherent or is it something that you have to learn?
1: Well, I think it's both. Yeah. Um, I think from my research, it, it shows that compassion is, some people are definitely more innately compassionate, without a doubt. Some people are just higher on the empathy scale when they're born and good for them. But um, but compassion is totally a learned skill. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And how do you teach someone compassion?
1: You know, we, um, we teach it with... Uh, Mindfulness meditation is a huge component, yeah. Because you know, uh, uh, probably a lot of most people are aware of the research now, but it, it changes our neural pathways, right? So we we get more left prefrontal cortex activity, which is where compassion and empathy are fired from in our brain, and then um, so that's huge. And then also self awareness. So like, hey, what's my what am I bringing to the table? What what energy am I bringing to the room? Where when I'm angry, do I have space between? the thing that made me angry and my reaction or am I just so quick to react that I don't even know that there's a choice there that I'm just reacting
0: so quickly. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm thinking of, um, so let's say somebody is, is on the autism spectrum and maybe they don't have that compassion component. Mm-hmm. Is that, is, is, um, mindfulness, mindfulness meditation something that they could practice to help with that or?
1: You know that's not really my area. My guess is yes, yeah. But I've t- I'm definitely not an expert on this, and I, I wouldn't want to say yeah, yeah, go do it. Right. But um, my guess is it would be very helpful, and and you could start with um, even two minutes of time, depending how um, how how far the the person is on the autistic spectrum. You know, because mm-hmm. the more down the road they are, the more difficult it probably would be. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I do think it would be helpful. Mindfulness has, the research is just profound how it's helped people from all walks of life during all, you know, from PTSD to um, addiction, mm-hmm. drugs, alcohol, whatever, um, regular people who are just, you know, chronic illnesses. So it's a really powerful tool. So I imagine it would be
0: helpful. Right. So when you're studying compassion, how do you study that? How do you collect data? In what way? What are the data points? Sure.
1: Well, I mostly use data collected from um, Richie Davidson. So he's the scientist guy that he's he's basically, I'm pretty sure he's got the largest mindfulness meditation research center where he he actually puts the little nodules on the, all the, the monks the nodes and stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And he did um, uh, Matthew Ricard, he, he kind of made that guy famous because he kind of became coined as the happiest guy on earth because he was kind of off the scale on his happiness factor. And um, so I use him as far as scientific data, but then I I read all these sources, like, you know, we look at Carl Jung, we look at, you know, any kind of all these philosophies, we, we take the philosophy of Buddhism, and we compile that together. So I am just using my, I guess it's my creative sense. But I'm taking all these sources and then I'm I'm creating my program or my mm-hmm. workshops or, you know, with with what I feel is what has impacted me
0: the most, I guess. And your experience and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So walk us through what that experience is like. Um and how you're working with are you are your the people you work with, are they clients? Are they patients? How does that work?
1: Um I kind of do I do. My, I teach mindfulness mm-hmm. by itself, just mindfulness meditation, and often that is in the hospital setting. Not okay. always, but it, a lot of times it's corporate. But for sure, the hospitals are—they love it, and they do it both for their um, the doctors and nurses because you know they lack self-care. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, cause, I love to hear that because yeah. they're going eight thousand miles a minute, and they they work twelve-hour days or more. And they don't have that time for self care. So the, anyway, they'll ask people like me to come in and we do just a mindfulness thing like once a week or something like that for an hour. They call it lunch and learn or whatever it is. But mm-hmm. they're nice. They're they're very good. And then also the patients, they do they also support it for the patients. But then I'm also doing um corporate mindfulness, which is
0: neat. It's a little bit more Which is also fantastic yeah, that you're doing that, yeah, yeah. In that setting. Yeah. It's
1: helping, right? Yeah so Google kind of spearheaded that. They, they started a program about 12 years ago. It's called search inside yourself. And, um, so we've kind of learned from that model and, and they're really, we've, we've been talking with them about how to build our own model and, and they kind of, they're supporting us and helping us move forward. So that's great. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but then on the workshops that the compassion workshops, I do those a lot of times in the academic world, like at a, convention or a seminar or something like that for academics. And then I also do them at the library just for whomever wants to come. I just advertise it. Yeah. And then I'm doing um I, I'm also doing those in corporate settings as well. But it's mostly the healthcare people right now that are interested. I'm I'm looking to grow that, of course. But
0: for now it's um healthcare. Yeah, those supporting services are crucial. Because yeah. you're right. Just not getting that. And in the corporate setting the corporate setting can definitely use more empathy and compassion. We've lost it. Yeah, we've definitely lost it in that arena. I agree. Yeah. So you walk into a room and you're you're in front of a group of people. What is the experience like when you're when you're teaching people about compassion?
1: You know, it's super interactive. Mm-hmm. I, I usually it's usually smaller groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so we usually sit in a circle. And I usually start with a little mindfulness, just um, if if people aren't willing. But I just ask everybody to close their eyes. But if, if that doesn't work for them, they don't have to. And we just sit for a few minutes just to kind of quiet. And then um, we dive into – I just do about a five-minute little gig about who I am and my background. And then I jump into um, the definition of compassion because it's kind of crazy. Like people – I find it interesting how – skewed a lot of people's definition of compassion is there's they they pull in a lot of pity and they pull in a lot of um they get confused about empathy and compassion and the difference and you know it's it's like anything you spend 10 years studying something and of course you're kind of a nut job and and you think about it every (laughs) second right so for me i'm like I, d- I d- sometimes I don't explain it because I think, oh, that's basic. It's too basic. I, right. They don't need to hear that. And so I've found in my practice as I teach, wait, wait, we need to define compassion. Let's define it, right? Because it's not, it's not weakness. It's not any of that.
0: I can relate to that because leadership is the same way. Yeah, everybody has a different definition. Yeah, sure. You know? I think that that's another really important question to ask if you're trying to build a compassionate group of people, um, is what is your definition of that? What does that look like to you? So people are pulling, pulling in pity, um, things like that. What, what is the definition of compassion? Is there one? Well,
1: I mean, I think there's lots of definitions and I think for me, I define compassion as, so empathy is the precursor to compassion. Mm-hmm. So empathy is that thing that makes us go, oh, wow, that person's hurting. I'm feeling their pain. I'm in it. And it can be overwhelming at times, but we we have empathy and we have to feel empathy. And then the compassion component is the movement towards how can I alleviate some pain? It doesn't mean that I'm going to give away life and limb, take in every homeless person I meet, but it does mean that I see the pain in the world because I have empathy. I see that man over there, that woman over there hurting and in pain. And the thing that I can do right now is I can walk over there and have a conversation or I can buy her a coffee or, you know, whatever it is That's the one thing I can do right now, it doesn't have to be some crazy, big, huge thing. It Mm -hmm. can just be, I have one blog thing. I wrote um, a blog post. It says, 10 ways i can live with compassion right now without changing anything in my life. It's it's that easy. Right. It's just that we have to have awareness. Cuz i think most of the time we're just not thinking about that person over there because we're in a hurry or we have to we're late or you know we
0: have a meeting or whatever it is mm-hmm. cuz our life gets busy. So is it just about being aware that you're not taking that moment to really put yourself in somebody else's shoes? Is that?
1: Yeah, i think that's a huge part of it. I think it's a simple I think, okay, in order to have true compassion, we have to have some degree of psychological wholeness because our stuff gets in the way. So when I'm feeling defensive or insecure or unworthy, I'm gonna pro- I'm gonna project my stuff on you. and and so you may ask me a question, but I might posture like defensively just because of my own filters. And so when we look at this, self so in my workshops we try to look at this self awareness and it's really quite deep we really have to understand the more we can understand about ourselves and why we do what we do and what the inner workings are the more apt we will be to have compassion and to live with compassion mm-hmm. so i think compassion becomes a very natural component once we soften the complexes and the the pushes and pulls of our ego, if you will. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of using language that, has yeah,
0: be- because you're focusing on yourself, and that those barriers, ego, yeah. often gets in the way.
1: Yes. Yeah. And and the the ego stuff gets very. Um, we can get very rigid or very defensive. You know, like if we're feeling defensive or feeling rigid, those are signs that we're not in a space of openness. So the more open and. The more open we are, the more apt we're probably more psychologically whole. So, when, when people tend to be rigid and stuck in a thinking process, it, it has to do with not enough psychological wholeness tools. Mm-hmm. And um, so, anyway, when we look at why we do what we do in these self awareness questions, and, and when we dive in, then we can gain a deeper perspective, and then we're going to be able to walk with more compassion.
0: Yeah, does that make sense? It does make sense, okay. and it's still so intriguing. I want more. <laughs> like, what is going on here? Um, when you started really studying compassion, and you were obviously interested in it, but what is something that that appeared in your study that was totally unexpected for you?
1: I think it was really unexpected how misconstrued the idea of compassion is like most people if you just walk down the street and you ask 10 people what they think compassion is they're gonna say it's awesome but it's for like moms or grandmas or like weak you know like people who are like not in the business world or not like corporate america or you know they don't see compassion as or maybe it's for um monastic people or something like that so they value it but they don't value it for their life mm-hmm. or every everyday life or, you know, they value it for people who need to nurture if, you know, or, or like in the healthcare field, they value it in the healthcare field, but they don't value it in the board meeting on Wall Street. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. I that, you know that's a really good um, distinction that I can now, you know, I can picture somebody in a boardroom on you know sitting there in the stock exchange and then somebody who has to t- take care of patients yeah. yeah there's definitely a difference and there should be more compassion yeah in both Sh- you're right yeah
1: i think compassionate leadership is is a huge opportunity for all of us to to really reframe compassion because compassionate leadership is strong and mighty it's like clear it's direct it's it's able to deliver difficult information with clarity and kindness even when it's not what the person wants to hear you mm-hmm. know and and that's that's beautiful that's intimacy that's um that's giving somebody the opportunity to really grow and it's really actually more safe if i'm able to say to somebody hey i really didn't like the way this went down because i feel this is going to hinder us um I'm really clear and direct and I'm and I'm giving them specific reasons as to why this isn't this doesn't work for our our company or whatever it is. And and then they can feel safe to say, "Oh, okay, yeah, I wasn't as good as I could have been, and it's okay. Like I have an opportunity to do better." And I think as leaders, when we are able to foster that innovation or that creativity or that, that growth, like, like when somebody feels safe that they can fail and we're going to nurture that process of learning a better way to do it. I think that's
0: huge. That's key. Yeah. And I think it's something that as uh, leaders, we all are working towards that Yeah, and you continually have to work on that. Mm -hmm. It's not just you, know, you you wake up one day and you can do that because everybody's different. Everybody receives information differently. Yeah. Your right. mood changes, their mood changes. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's not just an easy, straightforward thing. Totally. Yeah. And same with compassion, right? It's hard to have compassion all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. So what, are, what is something you can suggest that someone do? to help maintain and grow and and nurture that compassion so that they're in that space where they can be there consistently. Sure. Well, I I always say
1: the, the best thing is to sit quietly. If mindfulness works for you, do mindfulness. But even if it's for two minutes, five minutes, even if you have an iWatch, you know, they have that breathing app, mm-hmm. you can do that. It sets for one minute and you can just breathe and it kind of vibrates on your wrist to tell you to take in-breath, out-breath, whatever. I mean, there's a million ways. But just sitting quietly for whatever time works for you is good, is good. It it helps us to just soften the edges. And if we did that consistently every day, it's amazing the difference it makes. And it just gives us a little space so that when we are tired and when we, when we do feel reactive, we just have a little space to go, do I really want to say that? Uh Sometimes we do choose to say it, even though we have the consciousness that we are doing something. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we choose not to, but it doesn't matter. Like the thing about compassion is it's in the choice. It's in the pause. Compassion comes in the pause. It's that moment in between whatever life is giving me and whatever I choose to do or react with or whatever. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does.
0: It's taking that moment to clear your mind and get out of your own head. Yeah. And not only put yourself in somebody else's shoes, but really feel the moment and what's going on. Almost, you know, lots of times before I make a decision, a tough decision, I'll just sleep on it. Yeah, that's great. It's kind of like that, you know, giving yourself that space. Sure, yeah. And um, something I talk to my clients a lot about is, uh, you know, we're often pressured to make a decision right away. Yes, yes. And if you find yourself pausing or not sure of what the answer should be. Ask for space. Totally. That's great. Ask for that space. And um, yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. But that should also be uh, the same for the person asking the question. Give the person space. Give yourself that space. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I love this. Now, how did meditation, um, how did you bring meditation into all this? Because we have mindfulness. It's it's, uh, what we just spoke about and how well that pairs with compassion. Sure. And then how did, did you pull meditation in? Is that something that you did?
1: Well, no. I mean, I am a, a proponent of it, but mm-hmm. the Dalai Lama is very, he supports this wholeheartedly. So all that research done by Richard Davidson, he he's kind of the guy who really put that bug in everybody's ear of how mindfulness really does change our ability to act with compassion. Mm-hmm. So I think that there, there have, there's a couple schools in the United States. I mean, there's more than a couple, there's a handful that actually teach self-awareness classes that include mindfulness to children. Uh, there, So there's a lot of people doing it. It's mm-hmm. just, uh, it's not like super mainstream, but if you're in the mindfulness circles, of course, you know, like I hear about it and see it and it's great. I love it. It's anytime we can promote mindfulness we're we're promoting self awareness and we're we're being aware of our own wake. So if we can teach that to little kids, whoo that's
0: awesome. Yeah, we're onto something good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Where did you go to school? I went to Pacifica Graduate Institute. It's in Santa Barbara. Okay. Yeah. It's a it's a small school and it's all psychologies and humanities. So it's all a bunch of um yeah, philosophy people kind of psychology.
0: Yeah. What did you get your undergrad in? Um uh, marketing, advertising and marketing, yeah. It's all related, right? Mass communication. It really is. It's, it's, uh, I, I think so at least. Um, so what brought you to Las Vegas?
1: So I lived in Las Vegas, um, all, all along. And then I moved away to go to school for eight years. Uh-huh. So I'm, I, well, I mean, I wasn't born here, but I lived here. I went to UNLV for my undergrad and, um, my parents live here. My grand, my grandparent, my grandmother, She's My grandfather is not alive anymore. But anyway, my grandmother and all my aunts live here. So family's here. Mm-hmm. And I just left for whatever, eight years, nine years.
0: Nine and years came back. in yeah. Santa Barbara? Yeah. Why did you leave Santa Barbara? I know, right? <laughs> but it's
1: kind of nice here. Um, you know, we have a pool in the backyard and we have a garage.
0: Everything is so small in Santa Barbara. Yeah. So it's nice. So you study mindfulness and compassion. Mm-hmm. And This is what you're teaching. Tell me about you. How do you personally practice Sure, that's a good question. Um I do
1: um I'm a meditator, so I, I try to meditate in the morning, but I'll meditate whenever mm-hmm. whenever it works for me. Um but I do try to get I do my 20 minutes in the morning. 20 or 30 minutes is usually my thing. Um I have a couple meditation partners that I sit with as well, and we just it's kind of funny. We do like over Skype or something, so you can see the video, but we just sit there and close our eyes. But it's fun to have a partner because then you feel you know, it's like working out with somebody. Yeah. You show up.
0: Technology is a good thing.
1: Right. So I do that with a few gals. Um, and then I, I'm, a, I'm a reader. So that's my self-care. Like when I, when I need to recharge my batteries, I, I read. And I'm also a journaler. So I usually write. Um, have you ever heard of that book, The Artist's Way?
0: Yes, I have.
1: Okay, so I've been doing it for years, so I still write my three pages a day. Oh, really? Yeah, I've been doing it, I don't know, probably 15 years, but I just love it. It helps me, and it kind of lets me make sense of all the ramblings in my mind and get it out. And then I also do a gratitude journal, and I think um, I write one page of gratitude every day, and I that's been really meaningful for me. Mm-hmm. It's it's made, a, I think gratitude is kind of like a relationship. You, you kind of build a relationship with gratitude when you, well, like anything, when you foster it, it grows. Right. So when I, when I've built, built this relationship with gratitude over the years, cause I've probably been doing the gratitude journal for, I don't know, maybe eight years. And, um, the things where I feel grateful, I am moved really deeply, you know, because I don't know, whatever, the tree looks amazing or the sunset's amazing. And I'm, I'm moved to tears because, and I think it's because of this gratitude journal, because mm-hmm. I, you know, I just, I'm just making it conscious, I guess, in my mind. But anyway, so yeah. those are my things.
0: Where do you find the time to do your writing, your three pages in your gratitude journal?
1: Well, I'm not a mommy, okay. Unfortunately, I mean, I would like to be, but I'm not. Right. So that's one way. Um. So I don't have little babies to tend. Um. And I th- I can think a family would be tough if I had I have niece and nephew. So when I'm with there, I don't do it. You know what I mean? But um. I I do just try to prioritize it, and there's days when I don't do it, and I just go, "Oh, look at that! It happened. Okay, mm-hmm. no big deal, no big deal." But um. But I know that. So in my teachings of compassion, so compassion includes self-compassion, which would be self-care. So I know that I can't fully meet the world with compassion if I'm not having compassion for myself. So compassion for myself shows up in my meditation practice, in my journal writing, in my gratitude. So that's how I stay on track. And And I think, too, as I've become more in this teacher role, it's kind of inspired me because I want to show up as the best me for the people who are coming to listen. So it's helped me. I, I appreciate that part of it too.
0: Yeah. Isn't that it's, it's for, for me, at least personally, I love that part of my work as well. Yeah. it It's like, okay, I have to show up for other people. I have to set an example. If I want other people to be better leaders, I need to be that as well. Mm-hmm. But there's also the other times when I don't want to do anything. Totally. You know? Yeah. Um, do you, I know sometimes I give myself a little bit of a hard time for that. Yeah. That's easy to do, isn't it? It is easy to do. Do you have a, a similar experience?
1: Um, you know, I, d- I definitely do. And I try to just check in with that self-compassion, you know, yeah. but I, it's totally hard for us. And, and I say, oh, look at that. I call them the shame demons. I don't know. Verne Brown, I think, is the one who <laughs> coined that phrase in her book, Daring Greatly, which I thought was an awesome book. But anyway, so shame demons are going. Check that out. And I go, oh, look at you guys. And I, it doesn't serve me. I don't need you. Like shame's a tough one. You know, it doesn't really help us. It doesn't get us anywhere. There's nothing wrong with feeling remorse, but shame is over the top. And then I just, um, try to give myself a hug and be like, yeah, you're totally human. Look at Mm -hmm. that. How cool. Mm -hmm.
0: Yep. That's what I do too. Just give myself a break. Yeah.
1: So this is a funny story and I, I don't know. Um, it's probably, so I'm driving to Whole Foods and, um, I had just gotten off of, oh, what was it? I came in from from China, Beijing, yeah, yeah. So I hadn't slept in like, you know, whatever, 20 hours. It was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I'm totally low sleep. I tried to sleep that night, but I couldn't because I'm on a different time clock. So uh, seriously, I slept like two hours, and it's been like a whole, it's been a week of time where I'd slept two to four hours a night, and I was, so I'm in disaster. So I'm driving to Whole Foods, and there's a dude in the crosswalk going, da-da-da, and I'm turning, um so I have to wait for him to cross the crosswalk before I can go. And this man behind me starts totally beeping. Honk 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 honk. And I just turn around and look in my like out the window and I'm like, "Don't you see the guy over there? He's in the crosswalk. What's wrong with you?" And then I'm like, Stop and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're a meditation teacher. What if that guy was going to your meditation? (laughs) This is so
0: true. I have like my my company logo on the back of my car, so there I do have those moments, and that's what helps me. I'm like, your company logo is on the back of your car. You should probably relax or that's good. We are only human, right? We're all only human. And then you just go, okay, so it is. Yeah. Do you
1: see yourself as a leader?
0: I do. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's been a it's been a neat transformation to come into that.
0: Mhm. You know. Tell me um what's your top 3 leadership traits are that are most important to you? Um I
1: think my openness, mm-hmm. t- like being open to learning from everybody. And I think um you know, I think my I'm high on the empathy scale and I think that really helps me to be a good leader because I'm able to see what's happening in the room. I can say, oh, hurting or whatever, you know, like I can see the, what's going on with the people around me. And I think that helps me to discern kind of what's needed mm-hmm. in the moment. Um, and the third one, I would say I have grit. So if I don't know the answer, I'll keep showing up and I'll do my best, and we'll we'll figure it out together. Like, I think that's, um, like, let's do this. Like, I'm here. I'm the teammate. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's, those are my three
0: things. Okay. I was surprised not to hear compassion. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Yeah. That's all, but it's all a part of of all of everything that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. So who or what inspires you?
1: Well, my all-time awesome inspired, inspiring person is the Dalai Lama. I think Mm -hmm. he's amazing. But um, the reason why is I think he, he, he teaches kindness. You know, he says my religion is kindness and he teaches us to be more thoughtful. He's a proponent of self-awareness. He's a proponent of meditation. He understands the research. He, he, he's totally um, pushing science to look at meditation and why it's such a benefit. So I think that's really cool. And he also is um, a supporter of teaching children all of these tools. Mm-hmm. So he's definitely one who inspires me hugely. But I think in general, I'm inspired, like we were talking about earlier, about people's stories, you know, people who overcome challenging things like, like all of us have. And when, when they become great because of it, it's the most beautiful thing ever. You it know? really is.
0: Yeah. It really is how you can um experience such a beautiful life out of out of darkness. Yeah. Yeah. I there's a quote out there somewhere I'm sure <laughs> that would support what I just there said. There probably is. A really <laughs> yeah. good one too. Yeah. Yeah. So you have your daily routines mm-hmm. for the most part, mm-hmm. unless you're, unless you're with um, the kiddos. Yeah. Um, so you wake up in the morning and, and walk me through what a day in the life of Jacqueline looks like. Sure.
1: So I usually wake up in the morning and I usually kind of just brush my teeth and usually Ward is my partner who I live with. And so he's, a, he's a super coffee guy. So we go downstairs, have coffee, I have tea. And then, um, he'll go to work and I usually sit and do my meditation and then I do my writing right after that. I do, um, I usually do my gratitude journal in the morning. Um, so often it's reflective of the day prior or -hmm. sometimes it's, sometimes it's not because sometimes it's just more general, but, um, and then I do a little, just a short little workout just to kind of get for my body, just to help me feel like I'm in shape or something like that. And, and then I try to, Forward, I'm I'm writing my book, so I'm trying to sit down and write, and so that takes diligence. I have to like show up every day, even when I'm like, oh, I should make phone calls, oh, I should get another seminar going, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying just to sit down and write, and that takes stillness because it's easier to fill my time with the busy work of phone calls or something. Because I just I spend a lot of time trying to think of. Oh, who's going to need this workshop? And then I just start making phone calls and calling people and saying, "Hey, is this something that would be interesting for you?"
0: <laughs> yeah, that'd be easy to do. Yeah, no distraction totally.
1: Or do the laundry or anything yeah, else, yeah, right? Yeah. Or walk right. the dogs. We have two dogs, yeah. so um, yeah. And then I usually do walk the dogs, and then we always Ward
0: and I usually have dinner. So yeah,
1: it's kind of simple, but it's good.
0: Mm-hmm. When you have challenge in your life. What do you do to face that challenge and overcome it? Mm. Yeah,
1: challenge. Right, it's always there, isn't it? It comes and goes. Um, I think I, I I'm a proponent. I dive into me, like what's going on for me. Why am I feeling whatever it is that I'm feeling? Am I feeling unworthy? Am I feeling scared? Is it fear? Am I stuck? Um, and I try to look at what's going on in me because I feel like when I look at everything going on inside me, then I can approach the world. Like the world out here doesn't necessarily have to change for me to have a better experience. And I am a proponent of fully taking responsibility for my part of the deal. So I just, I think my, my when I'm struggling, I just try to dive in and figure out what's going on inside what is my insides telling me what is my body saying and i and i do through my meditation practice i have become super um aware of you know like i get a thing in my tummy when i'm when i'm nervous i get my tummy gets upset and that's a sign to tell me like i'm i'm you know whatever might something might be arising or when i get heat in the back of my neck that's telling me like I'm probably going to get angry right now or you know little cues like that so I try to pay attention to that so I can get introspective and understand why so the the short answer is I get introspective and I look at why I'm feeling the way I do and then once I understand why I feel most of the time I do have that space that we talked about where I can either choose differently, or at least even if I can't choose differently because I'm so steeped in the pain or the aggravation or whatever it is, at least I'm still being conscious that I'm deciding to act with anger or deciding to act with whatever it is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you studied for eight years. Mm-hmm. Your, your PhD program was eight years. Are you still doing any work with that program? I'm, I'm interested in knowing if you're still connected to the work the data um you did a dissertation and all that's very related to what you do now and really how do you keep up with s- staying relevant in that field
1: um i think a few things that i do um i do a lot of academic conferences mm-hmm. and i go to them and i speak at them and i think both It's interesting to go speak because then it's it's interesting the questions that come back. You really learn a ton, as I'm sure you know from your retreats and stuff. You learn a ton from the people asking you questions. So that's been great. Um, I do that often. And then I also, um, I'm an avid reader. Mm -hmm. So I just try to keep going with my reading. And then I'm also very, I, I just try to have conversations with people like, what's going on for you? How's work for you? What does leadership mean to you? What does compassion mean to you? What you know? Do you see compassion as something that could be implemented more in the workplace? And and like the Google thing, I reached out to Google and found support there. So I just any opportunity that I think might be something that would give me more tools, I
0: usually go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any book recommendations for anyone that might be interested in this area of study? Mm. Yeah, there's a lot.
1: Let me think. Um a great book is The Wise Heart by Jack Kornfield. Phenomenal book. He talks about compassion, self-compassion. Excellent book. One of my favorites, top top three. Um, I think also to I it's more heady, but this the the Essential Young is a book about it's all it's kind of like parts of Carl Jung's writing and um it really gives the essence to Dive into self-awareness. So that one was really meaningful, but it's, it is pretty heady, you know, like it's not like a quick read. Mm-hmm. You got to slow down and think about it. I think Joseph Campbell is also really an interesting author and he helps us to dive into why we do what we
0: do through story. He's, he's a neat, interesting guy. All right. Advice for anyone who would like to uh, introduce more compassion in their life. How do they start? What do you suggest they do? Um, I would suggest
1: probably doing some kind of meditation or quiet time, whatever that might look like for them. Um, And maybe reading The Wise Heart. That would be good. And if you don't have time to read, I would say just every day when you wake up, just say, what's one thing I can do today? to be more compassionate and you know sometimes it's as silly as if you're in the line at Starbucks buy the person behind you coffee and and just don't tell anybody though i think the thing about compassion is we don't want to brag about it cuz then we're in ego again so just do something like that if you if you see a homeless guy maybe it's yeah i sometimes carry granola bars in my car and then I can just be like, hey, you hungry? And I can hand the guy a granola bar. Mm-hmm. And um, so those are just little things. And I also do dog treats because a lot of times the homeless guys have dogs and I want to give the doggy a treat. Mm-hmm. So anyway, those are just little things you can do. There's, I think that's the key about compassion or at least starting with compassion. It's not about doing this whole let's change our life situation. It's about just waking up and having a little bit of consciousness about what can, what's one thing I can do today? Mm-hmm. That's going to be a compassionate act. And it could be as small as holding the door for the person behind you, you know? Right. Like instead of rushing
0: off. Is compassion contagious? Yes. Right. Totally. So if you're doing that, and this this is a, a great opportunity for those leaders out there who are listening, is if you want the people around you to also be compassionate, show them what that looks like. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah what would your advice be for anybody who would like to introduce compassion to someone else? So they're working in a corporate environment or they're at home and they, you know, they want to, they, they see the importance of compassion and they would like to help someone discover what that means. And maybe along that, that journey to finding compassion. Sure. Um, I think one very effective way
1: to help others find compassion is to Foster their empathy. And I would say volunteering, whatever that, whatever that means for them or whatever like is comfortable for them. It doesn't matter. Um, You could go as intense as being hospice or you could go as light as, you know, I mean any volunteering at the library. It doesn't matter. Just getting out of our comfort zone to do something that gives us some sense of meaning
0: for somebody else's benefit. Mm -hmm. And then continuing to set that example, Mm right? Right
1: and then and then so i think the hope would be that if you had um a person in your life who wasn't expressing as much compassion or empathy as you would like in the process of volunteering i think what happens to us is we see the world more clearly we might see pain more clearly or see how these people are affected by challenging situations and then and then we start to see the connectedness how we're not that different Mm -hmm. oh they're the same as me like this could happen to me too and that's where compassion really shines is once we have that human to human quality or human to human connection we have to be compassionate because i'm i'm it's like that that saying is if i if i get a splinter in my left hand my right hand doesn't say to my left hand oh that's your problem sorry dude figure it out (laughs) no the the right hand's gonna pull the sliver out so that's what compassion is we're all when we see other people as others yeah we don't want to take the sliver out of their hand but when we see them as our left hand of course we take the sliver out
0: yeah I like it Jacqueline thanks so much for coming in today thank you this was fun oh I loved it thank you so much you're welcome such interesting work. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Jacqueline Rinaldi's work and services, visit JacquelineRinaldi.com. That's J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-Y-N-R-I-N-A-L-D-I.com. Links to items mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes. If you have not done so yet, one small action that makes a huge difference for our show is is to leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. This helps people find us. If you would like to learn about the business coaching services that Leadership Excursion Company provides, visit leadershipexcursion.co. And I'm your host, Cree Edholm. Thanks as always for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.